I love having access to these old interviews. And so let's now go back to an interview I did in 2017 with my friend, Professor Samuel Moyne, who is a big deal and he ought to be. He's one of the most brilliant people I've ever known. And so let's listen to him talk about both of the Holocaust controversies that he was involved with, one as a participant and the other writing about it. DaleWileyShow.com Okay, I believe we should be recording now. Okay, cool. And, um, and so anyway, I I just want to take a minute to introduce my old friend, Sam Moyne. I, I guess we could call each other old friends. It's been Absolutely. probably more than half of our life that we've known each other. And um, Sam has an unusual and uh, really distinguished professional career, first as a professor at Columbia and then at Harvard and now at Yale University. Is that correct? Yep. And uh, so uh, I guess that I described you last night when I was talking about you as an intellectual historian. How would you how would you describe yourself? That way. I mean, I, I, I went to Berkeley after we were together in college at Washington U and, and earned a Ph.D. in, in intellectual history, mainly modern Europe, uh-huh. uh, in focus. And then I, I, I went to law school. But I taught history for most of my career before joining the legal academy. So I still identify mostly as a historian. And you're, the way that, that you're described, I mean, a lot of your emphasis has been on the history of um, kind of human rights and civil rights. And what what kind of got you into that? Well, um, yeah, so, so, so first I really studied European thought, which I'd gotten onto at Washington U and some classes I took. Um, and I still dabble in that. But in law school, I got interested in the human rights movement. And I've just spent maybe 10 years thinking about it and now I'm going to move on to some other topics, but most of my writing lately has been about where human rights ideas and movements and politics came from. And um, and in that sense, you know what I what I think about first when I think about you is um, going to Cardinal games and and Bernard Gilkey playing and you shouting in the most deadpan voice ever. You city. I mean, that is my calling card, and that's where I enter into right. your world. Is right. you were a Cardinal fan, and you were all about you city. I was. Uh, I, I'm still a loyalist when it comes to University City. I mean, I was. You know, I didn't know Bernard Gilkey, although I knew members of his family uh, in high school. But um, you know, my my childhood was was kind of spent with the Cardinals because I was 10 years old when they won the World Series in 82, and I went to games one and two thanks to my father getting some tickets. And, uh, you know, then we lived through a couple of other bad World Series. But, uh, <laughs> Memorable. I've, I've sort of, I, I can't say I've kept up with baseball or in general, or the Cardinals in particular, although I like to go to games when I'm in St. Louis. So, Well, it's still a lot of fun. But, yeah, I remember – City, and you know, someone indicated that the bleacher seats at at Bush Stadium now are seventy five dollars. That's incredible. And I know that we didn't pay near that much when we used to. No, no, never, never. And but 
you know, I I wanted to to say that we had kind of an amazing group uh, at the Student Life newspaper, and and you know, it's a group that's kind of stuck together. And so maybe you could just take a minute and kind of explain what went on there. Well, I I don't know <laughs> what group you mean precisely, but certainly those of us who were around the newspaper. Uh, uh-huh. all kept in touch via Facebook and other means, and a lot of interesting careers were launched. So I even think there's going to be a a reunion, which I probably won't make in the fall of Student Life newspaper. Alumni. Oh, yeah, they're, but, uh, they're talking about doing that. But I was just so amazed by, you know, you've got Joshua Sternfeld, who was the right. director and, and yeah. involved in some of that stuff, and then Nick Dave sure. is another um, idealist right. professor, and and Melissa right. Schwartzberg is there at uh, right. NYU, so not directly in the Ivy That's right. In fact, I, was, I think, you know, on Cadenza, there were, there were I think, three copy editors in a row who have since gone on to uh, Ivy League professorships. Uh, and who were who those? Well, the, the, well, that's Nick was one of them. Oh, right, and I, yeah. And I think I was his successor, or maybe there, maybe Carrie Lambert was involved briefly, uh, uh-huh. and she's now a professor at uh, at Harvard in uh, history of art. But Melissa, you know, after after our time, became the uh, editor of the paper for a couple of years and has gone on to a magnificent career. So it's it, it, those are just the academics, but as you say, I mean – a huge number of talented people with whom we both keep in touch in various ways, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's really amazing to kind of think about all the the people that went through there, like Wayne Drash, who's now at CNN. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's it's just really fabulous, and, yeah. and I enjoy yeah. keeping keeping up with uh, Kathleen Dames, who's become kind of right. the internet knitting star. So it's yeah, that's right. No, that's right. It's just, uh, Fantastic. After Cambridge Math, there's a, there's one of I think Wayne's boss at that time was Joseph Nathan, who uh-huh. is, uh, now in charge of the Harvard Coop, which is a you know the kind of main bookstore of the area or one of them. Uh-huh. So he and I were close friends, and he worked. He was the sports editor at Student Life. I remember that. Yeah, just an amazing group of people, and and I guess that you know in the way that I thought there might be kind of an interesting topic um, to talk about in um, bringing you on is that I was really interested in the the event that happened when we were at um, Student Life in the early 90s. And of course, the deal was that Student Life was totally student-run. There were no faculty advisors at all. And um, I was kind of amazed by the ad that was placed in the Student Life paper that ended up being a huge controversy. And I was wondering if if you could kind of give a little insight on that. Absolutely. That was a pretty traumatic period in my life, (laughs) looking back on it, because I wasn't deeply involved in the sense that – you know, we went to the editorial meeting and decided whether to run it, and and it, it was it was tied actually, and I voted to run it. Yeah, uh, I voted not free to speech run, it. run grounds, but <laughs> and then Dean Stevens broke the tie, and I think 
I I was asked by Dean either to write an immediate piece or a later piece or both kind of explaining the rationale, but I got uh-huh. very much caught up in it uh, without feeling, as I recall, all that strongly, but it was there was an immense controversy. So I should say, I mean, for anyone listening to this, that it involved a an advertisement that Holocaust deniers tried to take out at student newspapers across the country. It framed very kind of, you know, deviously as as a defense of free speech. Right. Um, and, and I think many people, uh, uh, including myself, in retrospect, took the bait and thought that, you know, there was there was something wrong with suppressing this ad, even though it was an ad, it wasn't an article, and you know, not no newspaper publishes everyone's view. And anyway, the First Amendment applies to government, not to student newspapers. Well, and the thing that I thought was so interesting about it, because here I am, I I'm not Jewish, and I voted not to run it, and yeah. you were Jewish, and you voted to run it. And I feel like you got some blowback from people on that. Oh, totally, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I had to uh, – I, I remember having to ha- have a, a meeting with uh, the rabbi of Washington U at that time. And, uh, wow. The professors were, you know, were quite uh, angry about it. And, and the whole – really, the whole campus and the city of St. Louis – uh, really reacted uh, very emotionally to and it, it was a it was a front page like you know it was it was oh, yeah. in the the St. Louis paper and Absolutely. it was the only thing that could draw more people to that office than the cadenza free friday giveaways that we always That's did. right. That's right. It was a huge event and very very uh, very trying times for a young young emotionally uh you know sensitive a man that I like I was then, <laughs> uh-huh. and and what I remember about that was my um, my distaste for it, and my reason for voting no was that it was made to look like it was a news article. Yeah, yeah, and and that was the thing that to me said, what if you know are we we're really opening ourselves up that we're kind of almost you know, taking this position that this is yeah. news and yeah. Yeah. it clearly wasn't. And no, and I guess no. I guess that what I've been asking about in the era of the politics of now and the yeah. politics yeah. of Trump and everything else and everything being fake news. I mean yep. that was kind of the definition of fake news. Yeah, that's right. It it it, it was an example of, of people blurring the lines between uh you know news and 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 fiction and uh you know it was presented fiction was presented as news in in an ad so i think those of us who voted to allow it should have been you know a little bit you know more listening to dale <laughs> And, well, <laughs> uh, if only to spare ourselves a lot of recriminations, uh, which were certainly you know, big ones at the time. Well, because I just remember that your involvement in the paper dramatically decreased from that moment on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, oh, yeah. It well, was I clear- think I, 
I, I ended up moving on to Cadenza, if I recall. Right. You know, no, you're right. And before that, I had been involved some other way and, uh, right. you know, maybe fast-tracking to a, a higher editorship. But uh, it, it was a big inflection point. It's true. And and I guess that in in thinking about that and looking about that, what I ended up taking out of that into your career is um, – Jean-Francois Steiner and the whole yeah. Treblinka affair, and, and you wrote a book on that. Is that right? I did, yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly that episode left me permanently interested in, like, how people made, you know, the Holocaust the moral touchstone that it has been up until at least a few years ago. And right. so a few years later, I definitely, you know, researched that topic and, and informed myself about it and in a way, like, um, you know, the way I framed that book um, many years later, I mean, at least 10, it came out in 2005, um, uh-huh. was was around the whole idea of a Holocaust controversy, which is the title of the book. And no doubt in the back of my psyche or mind was like having lived through the <laughs> Holocaust controversy as, as a young man and just as almost a bystander because again all I did was vote on the thing uh and and Dean broke the tie and uh, right. wrote a, but I did write a couple of visible articles kind of explaining explaining the editor's views well i definitely think that your you know your involvement in the sense that you were you were the byline on the editorial yeah. about yeah, this yeah i guess stuff. that's what happened i guess that's and, what happened and um and so i guess i think that's why it's so interesting and so just for people who don't know explain what the triple is treblinka is that the way to pronounce it yeah treblinka so treblinka was one of the the main nazi death camps uh and and it's less famous than auschwitz uh where where most where the highest number of jews died um but mainly because at Auschwitz there was a lot going on and a lot of survivors because it had a lot of work camps that were part of it, whereas at Treblinka they did nothing other than kill Jews on arrival. And and it was actually, like many other death camps, sort of unknown um, for a long time and only became famous in the 60s. And so I was studying how was it that, like, you know, our ancestors kind of missed the boat after World War II and didn't recognize the enormity of the Holocaust immediately, but it took them 20 years. And, you know, what I discovered is that actually we learned about, you know, decades before that student life controversy in St. Louis, you know, the world learned about the Holocaust as a result of these journalistic controversies that involved a lot of shady characters so it was an interesting story to tell and so tell me about jean francois steiner so he was a a a you know a young uh man on the make in the 60s and uh he was a uh was it involved in the algerian war in and uh and when he came back um you know, decided he wanted to write a, a kind of pot boiler about the Holocaust. And, you know, we would never do that now because we treat it as this solemn topic. Although there have been, 
you know, some, you know, films that test the boundaries of that understanding, like Life uh-huh. is Beautiful, which is kind of a comedy. But, um, right. you know, Steiner kind of was was writing before all of this in his 20s and and and, and decided he would almost make it like a Western um, that's how he told me he thought of it. I, I went to his house and he lent me his car to allow me to take all of his papers to the drugstore to photocopy them. And uh, uh-huh. I, I used all of that as the basis of the book. So he caused an enormous stir because, first of all, he said that the Holocaust was important and that, you know, Europeans had kind of missed the point of World War II because they hadn't taken it seriously but he also said that the 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 Jews ran the death camps which was true um, uh-huh. and 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 he sort of blamed them for doing so but in the end it was like a book meant to be like almost like a, a movie script because what it led to was one of these rare revolts that the Jews undertook during the Holocaust where they rose up and you know against the Nazis and uh uh, and burn the camp to the ground. And so in the end, Steiner wanted to kind of show that Jews, even though they ran the death camps, could also redeem themselves and, you know, um, act, you know, uh, kind of aggressively. Uh, and so this this book and the huge controversy around it, including in the United States, kind of helped make the Holocaust something that people know about today. Well, and because it, it was immensely popular in France, right? And I, yeah. I mean, even the name Triplink wasn't known until the exactly. book came out widely. Exactly. I think that's true in the United States also. Um, um, uh, just because these these are these are camps that that few survived and to tell about, unlike Auschwitz, let alone all the Western camps where a lot of non-Jews were in turn like Buchenwald or Bergen-Belsen. And so it's true that this controversy, um, but like the bigger point of the controversy in a way was that like, you know, so many people died at Nazi hands and it it just took a long time for people to understand how, how much they hated the Jews in particular and how they had directed so much um, of their, agenda at the extermination of the Jews. That wasn't obvious in 1945, and it wasn't really very central to, like, the Nuremberg trials either. And uh-huh. So it took it took a lot of activism to make the point about what, what you know, what, what, what the Nazis were trying to do and, and how the Jews figured in that picture. Well, and, and their really kind of shocking role of basically – you know, having to stand by and being put in the situation where they're having to do the executions too. Absolutely, absolutely. No, that this is a, um, you know, um, w- one of the more heartrending things I did in in the course of the research is go to Israel and and to its Holocaust Museum memorial called Yad Vashem and look in the archives and I found some letters from one of the young Jews who was selected at uh, Treblinka to run the death camp, and uh, his name was Richard Glazer. And he he wrote a letter to Steiner after reading the book because he was so angry, and he says, you have to understand, we didn't know it was happening. 
we got off the train and we were just chosen and we didn't know what for. And of course, you know, we, we had to survive, but it's to, to, to blame us for what we did is sort of beside the point because we were victims too. And, uh, you know, just his, his, his outrage and, and his sense of having to relive the horror of finding yourself taken off a train, somehow surviving, you know, not through a choice of your own and then having to, you know, lead, you know, trains and trains of, of people to their death is, is, it was just, I remember reading that in uh, Jerusalem uh, and uh, to this day, and it's in the book. And that was one of the things that you pointed out was that having that kind of lesser known view of, of this major covered event ended up really kind of reforming the way that you looked at visiting archives and, and some of the things that historians would be better known for. Absolutely. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I would say that I've, I've, I've very rarely, uh, you know, gone to archives, actually. That's one of the two main times I can think of, and I, I don't trivialize it because it's what most historians spend their lives doing. But, um, you know, I find that, you know, most of the time when you go to archives, the amount of stuff you find relative to the time you spend is very low. You right. Know, and so you have to be someone who wants to go blind on paperwork, which I, <laughs> even in when it comes to taxes and forms, health forms and all the rest of it that we do is, is not my favorite activity. Um, right. Some people love like going through the detritus of the past and, you know, touching papers that the dead have produced. Um, but I can say that when you find an extraordinary document like the one I'm describing in Yad Vashem, it is a remarkable experience. Well, so in looking back of it, how do you how do you look at what Steiner did and and, and what the man do, and, and how do you feel like you have um, added to the historical interpretation of all that stuff? Well, you know, I, I think that the, he he was he he kind of passed out of sight very quickly. You know, he's he's the kind of person who makes one mark in life and disappears. And and actually, a lot of people who he profoundly affected um, later regretted that Steiner had been the one to you know raise their consciousness. A good example is an, a, a now dead uh, famous. A classical scholar named Pierre Vidal Naquet, who uh, whom I also met with and who ha was very generous to me in Paris, and he he actually had his parents deported to Auschwitz, and where they were killed. But he he himself, you know, only understood thanks to reading Steiner that you know his parents had died as Jews, and because the Nazis had this very specific project of eliminating the Jews. And so, and yet he, he, he then reflected that he'd, he'd been informed of this by someone he thought was a kind of charlatan, you know, a journalist who, whose goal was to hawk books and uh, write a Western about, about, you know, the Nazi East. And so, you know, uh, Steiner had like maybe a, an evanescent but pivotal role and is now almost totally forgotten. 
and and yet you know history can remind us of like how how like you know dominoes uh, fall in different way very unexpected ways and if you don't have all of them there the you know the process stops and and so he was a kind of you know important domino and an important moment right and and so now i need to ask you how does all of that factor into your view of the current administration and fake news and all right. the things that are right. that are swirling around. Well, it's it's obviously a disquieting time. I mean, I I think that uh, it's true that we're we're in an era in which uh, if if they ever were reliable, these you know news sources have to be treated with lots of caution and skepticism. I think I've been kind of heartened and I wrote one New York Times op-ed about this maybe uh last August um that uh, you know got me again in a bit of hot water <laughs> I've been heartened that um he seemed like Donald Trump personally seems to have been kept in his box um not that um, American institutions are magical or something like that but he's just proven a much weaker actor than people feared now, right. The, the more powerful actor is, in a sense, you know, Fox News and, you know, the the society in which, you know, uh, you know, news can 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 ricochet around and with few vetting whether it's it's reliable or not. And that that seems like an endemic problem that we have to start facing um, like we're all free and we're all, you know, helping build, a you know, the news through the internet, but like the the censors and the the standard setters are 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 a thing of the past, and so we have this collective problem that we don't know how to ensure quality control and what we read and even think. Yeah, and along those lines, um, this you know not despite, but uh, through your work on human rights and everything uh you just got done with an op-ed piece in the new york times was it t yesterday or today it was in yesterday's paper yeah okay and the the column is titled how the human rights movement failed and so that seems like a great place to to end this interview is um did it fail and how do you feel it failed and and sure. what can be done to change that Sure. So first, you know, I, I only came to understand this by writing these articles, but I wish it were widely understood that authors of these pieces don't write their own headlines. And not only that, but they don't even know what the headline is until a right. publication takes place. Sure. That's um, right. So I, I don't think I don't think it's appropriate to say the human rights movement failed, but what I've been doing is worrying um, in the op-ed in this new book that it, it's sort of not the not up to the challenge of the bigger um, like you know sources of these evils that we've been talking about that that the human rights movement is facing. So, like a lots of folks, you know, in 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 our country in our state of Missouri you know which i identify with strongly um, uh -huh. let alone around the world they don't want to be told that they're immoral you know if they're told that they're 
they're violating people's rights, you know, minority rights. Sometimes they double down on, you know, on 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 oppression, you know. So human rights movements have all, only one tool they've developed, which is like what they call naming and shaming. But, you know, many people, we know our own children, respond to being shamed, not by changing their behavior, but by doing their behavior even more intensely. Right. So there's this question, what's the remedy? And then there's this bigger issue that the op-ed and book talk about, which is like, you know, why are people so angry to begin with? Well, one reason is fake news. One reason is they're they're led or misled into bad choices. One reason is, you know, the historic racism of our country and, you know, analogous things abroad. But there's also like new things which actually the human rights movement hasn't said or done much about, like growing inequality. So, you know, you look out at Trump voters, uh, a lot of them are, are, are losing status. They're not getting poorer, but they're not getting richer. They're stagnating. Right. And right. so the question is, like, do we need to deal with these people's grievances and not just protect minorities from them? Uh, and 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 this has been a big debate in this country and in, and and around the world. And my my trouble, my worry about the human rights movement is that it's it's focused on some things like free speech, you know, non discrimination, but hasn't really done well with the economic side of things. Even though that's that's one of the drivers of the backlash against elites and the embrace of fake news and all the rest of it that we're seeing. Right. And, and I mean, it's one of those things that there's not really an answer to it other than you got to get in there and get your hands dirty and, and see what yep. we need to do. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So, you know, a lot of people say like, we just need to broaden the movement, but I think we need new movements that, um, are more about connecting, you know, uh, you know, different kinds of people, uh, and and above all, look at at economic outcomes. You know, I've been as as one of these Ivy League professors at so many cocktail parties since the election, where people on the East Coast, especially, you know, intellectual elites, want to secede from the United States. Right. Uh, you know, but I'm I've, I'm just this is like a, its own version of intolerance. And as, as someone from what they call flyover country who identifies with it, 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 it's, it annoys me to no end that, that people um, who, who tout their own cosmopolitanism are not willing to find out what, what irks their own fellow citizens, even if they're from the wrong colored state. So right. The love you know, new of movements are crucial. The the love of people with a capital P, but not people with a small P. Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah that's uh, you know that's something my mother, uh, you know, who still lives in St. Louis, would always talk about. That uh, you know we we can't treat you know others as abstractions, uh, and you know 
it's very famous also to say that there are a lot of 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 folks who love humanity with a capital H but despise other human beings especially <laughs> if, especially if they're from someplace like Missouri and and I've been outraged by that view and and I think we need a new movement in in the United States to figure out how to get get different kinds of people in in together in conversation right well thank you so much for spending some time with me and I Thank really you, think Dale. this is an interesting discussion that when they're starting to talk about Sam Moyne biographies and things, they're they're going to have to look at this as something. I, that they I, I, I don't think no biographies are going to be written, but maybe for, <laughs> if I write memoirs for my grandchildren, I, I will use this as a crucial source. Yes, as a as a. I, I will say I have not been brought back to talk think about that uh, Bradley Smith ad at at Washington <laughs> U in many years. So that was I, that was uh, that was a treat. Well, I, I'm sure it wasn't a treat, but it is a nice thing to think about in the terms of how relevant it is today. Yes. Yes, you know, I agree totally with you, Dale. Because I remember that was that was a big deal for all of us. It so was it was it that, was huge. And so um where can they find your books if if they want to look into more stuff uh, about the, the the most of my books all of them in fact are on Amazon that's the easiest okay. thing uh and uh maybe one day I'll get a uh a St. Louis book uh launch but uh oh, you know, yeah. the, the newest one is published by Harvard University Press and it's widely available on internet sources and isn't there and some sort of, Amazon, of code but, um, that that you're Teaching at Yale but publishing at Harvard isn't that against its credit card? I don't think so. no, no, they don't. These university presses, they they don't kind of they don't they don't seek only faculty for that's how they began. That's true, but uh-huh. nowadays they're almost like independent businesses. Oh, and, I'm uh, they, they publish. I... Yeah, no, no, I, I. Well, you know, I quit Harvard and came to Yale, so that was a much bigger betrayal of Harvard than <laughs> publishing with Harvard while teaching at Yale would be. Okay. Well, I tell you, Sam, it's been really great catching up with you. Yeah, and, great. Um, thank you, thank you, Dale. Yeah, really appreciate thank it. You very much. All right. So, all right, uh, that was good, and now okay, cool. I'll get up there with the new stuff, and and I just thought that made for. Kind of an interesting discussion. So. Yeah, me too. I loved it, and I hope <laughs> I hope uh, I hope it launches your podcast. It's a great thing yeah, you're doing it. Uh, absolutely. I'm really excited to listen to the other episodes. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm sure I'll, you'll post on your 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 Facebook I will. page. I definitely will. And congrats so. on all your writing. I'm really yeah. Really proud of you. Well, it's not as um, you know quite as distinguished as being you know at, at Yale, but I'll take it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I don't, I don't, uh, you know, stand no, by. The, I, and the I know you don't. I mean, that's why. It, so, that's why I've yeah. always appreciated you. So that's amazing, and thank you, and really enjoy. All right, thanks, Dale. Okay, right. I hope to see you soon. Next time I'm in St. Louis. Yes, absolutely. Right. I'll, I'll be in touch about that separately. All right. Thanks to Sam Moyne on DaleWileyShow.com.